I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at fourteen ninety nine, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. This is an online recording given current restrictions, but hopefully it isn't too far away from the usual quality. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't but have a couple of quid to spare to do so, please have a look at patreon.com slash when Saturday comes. Harry, what are the snacks of choice for our quarter of a century shindig? Well, I've, I've lashed out on, a, on what I'd like to think of as a Faroese selection, which are Tunnock's Tea Cakes and Viscount uh, Mint Biscuits from Lions. And when I went to the Faroes about six years ago, every time I met anyone and had a cup of tea with them, they always would present me with a plate with these two items on it. And I assume that they were just kind of doing it because I was British. But then it happened so often, it seemed really unlikely that everybody that I met would have these things in their cupboard just on the off chance that an English person would turn up. And so I asked uh, a guy from the tourist board I'd met, and I said, oh, no, it's these Viscount biscuits. And he said, what? And I said, the, the mint biscuits? And he went, ah, the green biscuits. Yeah, they're, they're really, all the fairies like them. And, the, and the, the, the silver marshmallows, you see. And he told me that they're so popular in the fairies that when young fairies people go off to university in Denmark, their relatives send them a little parcel every week with Viscount biscuits, Tunnock's tea cakes and Tetley's tea bags. Fantastic. The man who told me this was Lev Hansen, who was actually a Faroese football international and when Saturday comes writer. Yes, WC contributor. That, uh, that's great about the tea cakes. It's like cultural, it's a good form of British cultural imperialism. Possibly the only good one. But it was because I noticed also that when they gave you a cup of tea, it was like it was like tea bag in a tea, you know, tea bag in a mug, proper tea. And they poured milk in it without even asking, which is quite unusual in Europe. In fact, once when I did it in Norway, the family that I was staying with all burst out laughing and said, we've read about that in books, but we never thought anyone would actually do it in real life. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, that, so that's what I've got here. And they're very, they're very good, actually, the Viscount biscuits. I've just eaten one. And they're very nice too. Isn't the Viscount just a posh yo-yo? Well, no, but I don't know about that. Don't I mean, you may not remember the yo-yo, but they came in a mint flavour as well. I'm, I'm interested in that popularity in the Faroe Islands, in the same way the Fisherman's Friend is very popular in Indonesia and places like that, isn't it? Yeah, it was, I think it was because the British, when in the Second World War, Denmark was occupied by the Nazis and uh, the Faroe Islands was occupied by the British and the Danes had, had kind of suppressed a lot of um, Faroese national identity. They wouldn't let them fly their national flag, which the British allowed them to do. So I think the, the British had a slight, you know, one of the few places where, in, the, in the world where the British are still popular, perhaps. Although, no doubt we've blotted that as well by now. And your football attendance has once again been halted by lockdown part dirt. Did you squeeze a last game or two in? I did. I got I got to uh, Wrighton and Crawl Crook against Tow Law and Heaton Stanlington against Crook. And in both cases, it was the same referee who uh, it must be a sign of getting older because he looked to me to be about 10. 
And when I saw him at Kingsley Park, I thought a child dressed as a referee had run on the field. And I, I did think, why is that child dressed as a referee? And I thought, oh, maybe it's something to do with Halloween. But anyway, he was quite a good, competent referee. Um, and last night, there were the, the sort of final games before lockdown, in which I noticed that Penrith won. And both their goals were scored by their striker, Kingsley Grandison. Fantastic name. He sounds like he, out of someone out of a Dorothy L. Sayers novel. Andy, any compelling happenings there? I don't like to mention the US election, but I briefly will. Uh, there was a, a Twitter poll in the US on Tuesday asking uh, people, in what state did you vote? And someone replied, existential dread, which I thought was good. <laughs> I spent the traditional Halloween uh, sitting inside with the lights off in case anybody came around trick-or-treating. Fortunately, nobody did. Could have offered them some dead ants for anybody who's been following the, uh, the occasional thing I've had about the ants. Still finding ants here, but always dead. We've got plenty of them. Maybe it's like species death, you know, the way that bees keep mis- mysteriously disappearing. Ants possibly less socially useful than that, as far as I can see. Twice recently, I've walked past a, a jogger in my local park when I'm doing my regular circuit. who's wearing an Independiente Santa Fe shirt, which is one of the two main clubs in Bogota and Colombia. It's similar to an Arsenal shirt. I wouldn't have known, but I saw the badge said Santa Fe now, and I looked them up and it was them. So as he goes past next time, I should probably say Independiente Santa Fe, because it's quite a long name to say. So by the time I've said it, he'll have gone, he'll be off. So I need to start saying it as he approaches. So I might need to shout a bit as he as he'd be coming in from you know distance away, um, but he might just be some guy from Bermondsey who thinks I've sworn at him in Spanish. But anyway, I'll, I'll report back if there's any further news on that. But other than that, I'm fine. <laughs> I attended Kendall Town versus Tadcaster Albion last Saturday. That'll be my last game for a while. Notable for many reasons, a lovely little ground. But best of all, by one corner flag, there was a fire in a little barrel like you used to see on a picket line, which is the first inside a football ground. I think they were just burning some litter for the coming lockdown or something. And behind the goal, 40 or 50 teenage ultras, which I did not expect to see at Kendall Town, giving tremendous support and abuse to the visiting Albion. And excellent footballing happenings up here in Scotland, though. It's particularly at Inverness Caledonian Thistle where they installed some technology to follow the football so that people could watch a live stream of the game. So the cameras were trained to follow the spherical unit of the ball as it travelled around the pitch. But unfortunately, instead, the camera followed the bald linesman's head. In fact, Air United's goal was not on camera because instead it was fixed upon the bald head of said linesman. (laughs) (laughs) And in that part of the world as well, a brief Rosses of Ross County's update, the Staggies have signed a fourth keeper to compete with Ross Laidlaw, Ross Doohan, Ross Monroe, and his name is Logan Ross. So a slight variation on the concept, but going strong still, and there'll be 300 fans to watch the Rosses on Friday night back in the ground. Andy, issue 404 of When Saturday Comes is out now. Another excellent letters page. Which letters did you enjoy in particular? Um, well, there's a short one from David Tomney who says, um, I don't know how you've done it, but WC403 smells like a peeled panini sticker. And he says, like 1986, like an Everton shiny when all you need is a John Bumstead, like a simpler time. Quite a Proustian reverie there from David, I think. A lot of people have probably hoped for their own equivalent of a John Bumstead at various times and often been disappointed, but soldier on. That's my advice. Also from uh, Matt Hopkinson, uh, referring to uh, Harry's column about fans dedicated to a single player, people who are watching uh, a friend who was a player, saying that he'd he'd seen that happen uh, with a linesman. Um, I found myself next to a group of six friends of the linesman at a recent game at Hallam. Such was their relentless commentary on their their friend's flag raising that um, Hallam's resistance of a spirited comeback by their opponents was uh, somewhat overshadowed. The linesman himself stoically ignored them, um, no doubt wishing he'd asked, asked at the onset to run the other line on the other side of the ground where fans aren't allowed. It reminded me, we're well, so a slightly reverse situation, of a game I was at once at um, Fisher Athletic, uh, Grand London, it was raining, so we sat in the stands, and there's no man sat nearby who said of the goalkeeper, home goalkeeper, was about to take a goal kick, and he said, sort of muttered, come on then, useless, like that. And a young guy nearby turned around and said, could you do any better, mate? And it turned out he was the keeper's brother. So the, the man moved to an, a different seat in the second half where he could presumably carry on quietly grumbling without being overheard or having to you know, justify his epithets. 
<laughs> and Harry, any standout letters for you? Well, uh, Tim Mann wrote a letter in about we we talked about on the podcast. Or I think I did about Budgie and the uh, the rhyming slang using footballers' names in the in the nineteen seventies TV series with Adam Faith, in which um, footballers' names so Bob McNabb for cab and things like that. And um, Tim says that when he was at school, they had a similar they invented their own similarly football related rhyming slang. And later on, he got to meet Chelsea fullback Dennis Rofe whose name had been used um, as rhyming slang for head, Dennis Rofe, Loaf, Loaf of Bread Head. And he said that he was very, very pleased to tell Dennis Rofe this. Um, <laughs> Dennis Rofe was apparently uh, singularly unmoved. Or indeed, as he, as he says, there, there, was, there was no look of excitement on his uh, Roy race. <laughs> Andy, the issue went to press before Nobby Styles died. I've been struck in the obituaries I've read by the hard times he had after he retired as a player. Yeah, he had signs of dementia apparently since he was in his early 60s, which is terrible really. Another another of the players who's likely to have been affected by heading old leather footballs, developing a degenerative disease. And you wonder how many players from before we knew anything about this were affected. I mean, Joe Mercer, who's a player in the 30s, he died only in the 80s, I think. His daughter mentioned that in his late years, he was probably affected by it. So there must have been loads of players going back to the, you know, the 1930s, back to the 19th century, perhaps later on became ill and nobody knew why at the time, but it was related to, to the days when they were footballers. So, yeah, it was a very a very sad uh, story altogether. Harry, do you remember him at Borough or were you too young to have watched him in his two no, years? No, I, I do remember watching. I, I saw my dad the other day and I only probably ever went to about, probably only been to about five football matches with my, my dad. And one of them was um, Middlesbrough played Benfica in a pre-season friendly. And it was just after Nobby Styles had signed. So everybody went, you know, I was about 10 and we all went to see Eusebio or as, as my friend Martin Dean called him, Eusebio. Um, <laughs> and we were all, you know, so we were all really excited to see one of the greatest players in the world. But of course, Nobby Styles just marked him out of the game as he had done in the 1966 <laughs> World Cup semi-final. So Eusebio didn't touch the ball at all. So like Nobby Styles basically just, just ruined the whole evening. He didn't get it. He didn't understand <laughs> You know, um, he did his job too well. So I do, I do remember that. And the other thing that I often remember about him was that in Bobby Charlton's autobiography, he says that Nobby Styles was a big fan of Danny LaRue, the, the female impersonator in the 1960s. And whenever they were down in London, um, he and he and Nobby Styles would go to Danny LaRue's nightclub, in Han- which was in Hanover Square in London, uh, to watch Danny LaRue's act, which, you know, he was the kind of RuPaul, I suppose, of the 1960s, Danny LaRue. Um, so now, you know, sort of watching a man dressed as a woman telling risque jokes, not really such a big deal. But in the 60s, it was quite a kind of cutting edge thing to do and, and slightly unusual really, because Nobby Styles was a very devout Roman Catholic, I think, as well. So him and Bobby Charlton, sort of an unlikely an unlikely pair to be going to watch a drag act, I think. I remember Danny LaRue being interviewed about his club once. And he, Danny LaRue had quite a slightly gruff voice, sort of camp, but slightly gruff voice. And him saying something about his, because a lot of people used to go to his club because it was open late at night. So a lot of other actors who'd been in other West End shows would go there later on because you could, it was like to the middle of the night. I remember him saying, you know, it was a classy show. You know, it wasn't just tits and feathers. <laughs> Not just tits and feathers. I could have had that above the marquee. (laughs) Well, that's why that's why Nobby and Bobby went. They knew it was a classy show. Yeah, they wouldn't have. They wouldn't have been seen anywhere near tits and feathers. The two of them, would they? They could have got tits and feathers in Manchester. They could. (laughs) Andy Nobby Styles myopia and missing teeth mean he was something of a caricatured player. We've covered footballers with eyesight problems before, but do any other toothless wonders come to mind? Well, of course, there are a lot of players from maybe up to the 1950s who look a lot older than they really were, partly because of having bad teeth or having some teeth out, that sunken cheek look. More recently, if you look at photos of Julian Coles, uh, spelt C-O-O-L-S, who's Belgium's captain when he got to the European Championship final 1980. He was only about 32, but he looks about 55. He had that toothless look, so uh, no crusts for him, I think. There were at least two Celtic players in the European Cup winning team, Bobby Lennox and Jimmy Johnston, who wore false teeth, or at least had false ones, which they took partly 
false which they took out before matches. And I remember Jimmy Donston being interviewed saying about the Celtic players walking out the tunnel alongside the Inter players who were all tanned with, you know, hair oil and so on. And there they were with no teeth in, you know. Also, um, Ken Bates, the impish former owner of Chelsea and Leeds, often looked like he didn't have any teeth. Loads of photos of him laughing. We can just see this empty mouth, you know. But he is quite litigious, so I'm sure it was just the way the photos came out. <laughs> that always reminded me of a dolphin, that smile that Ken Bates did. Yeah, you're probably the only person ever to compare Ken Bates to a dolphin. Actually. Like, <laughs> a world so. first. <laughs> Maybe Ken Bates has evolved, so he knows how to do things with sponges. You know, he can sort of. He's, he's, he was trying to tell us something. He was trying to tell us that Sonny had fallen in the swimming pool and needed rescuing. He's, he's very good at warning you if there's a shark on the horizon. That's right. He was warning us. He was warning us. And Harry, the great toothless players. I remember that uh, once talking to Alex Stepney, the, the Man United goalkeeper, and he was saying, he told me a story about, which it's kind of hard, I realise as I've started to tell this anecdote, really, it's quite difficult to tell it on tell it on uh, on a podcast. He said that when Gary Bailey was, uh, was the goalkeeper at Man United, he was having a lot of problems. Alex Stepney was sent in to talk to him. Uh, Gary Bailey said, I don't know what the problem is. I don't know what the problem is. Uh, you know, I don't know what, what's going on. And, and Alex Stepney said, I said to him, show me your teeth. And Gary Bailey smiled, this kind of immaculate smile that he had. And Alex Stepney said, now take a look at mine and kind of pulled out his dentures and handed them to him. Obviously in the old, you know, the trouble with you guys is you've all got your own teeth. You know, that Gary Bailey didn't want it enough. A player that sort of struck, struck me was that the old Queen of the South goalkeeper of the 1930s, Willie Fotheringham. Um, he had his false teeth and his pre-match ritual, he used to take his false teeth out, wrap them in a handkerchief and put them in the back of the goal mouth. And once when Queen of the South played at Arbroath, he forgot them. And the Arbroath board sent them back to Dumfries on a fish truck. <laughs> Issue 404 of When Saturday Comes is out. Now, please have a think about subscribing to the magazine or buying someone a gift subscription, perhaps for Christmas, via our website. Andy, tell us about some of the contents in that new issue. Well, we're looking at Project Big Picture, which is the plan uh, cooked up, although I seem to have written here coked up, but I certainly don't mean that, um, <laughs> by uh, Man United and Liverpool with the connivance of uh, EFL chairman Rick Parry to you know, consolidate the power of the top few clubs in various ways, which has been rejected since, of course, um, by the other Premier League clubs. And we're looking at it from the perspective of a Leicester fan, Stephen Wagg, Leicester being one of the clubs who are, who are not part of the cartel. And uh, also from the point of view of a low league club, uh, Tom Davis, who's a Leighton Orient fan, and also... Uh, the view from Italy were Juventus and their chairman, uh, Andrea Agnelli, who's the leader of the European Clubs Association, is pushing for more reform to the, the Champions League and threatening breakaways and so on. Andrea Agnelli, actually, is an example. It's a great phrase, a word that uh, it comes from America, um, a fail son, all one word, fail son, um, applied to sons or sometimes grandsons of successful men who've only ever worked for their fathers and who would otherwise fail if left to their own devices. Donald Trump Jr. being a classic example, the Glazers as well. And the Agnelli family, which is part of their own fiat, and Juventus is like their family business. So he crops up regularly to talk about how, you know, the bigger clubs deserve to be making even more money than they already do and so on. But you don't really get the sense he's actually got any real aptitude for business. It's just, you know, he, he's running the family shop kind of thing. Also, a Match of the Month feature, uh, David Stubbs went to Brentford, where he did a, a previous Match of the Month seven years ago on the day that Brentford didn't get promotion when they missed the last minute penalty that their opponents Doncaster went up the other end and scored and, and, and got promoted instead. Brentford these days of course one of the stronger championship clubs now in the new stadium but not able because there's no one there. David writes in the article uh, the community stadium sits forlornly pristine like a brand new bicycle as yet unridden because the boy it was bought for broke his ankle the day before his birthday. Also got articles on Berry and Macclesfield now revived Berry AFC started out in the Northwest Counties League and Macclesfield hopefully resuming from next season as uh, uh, also it'll be a fairly a long way down the leagues and we also of course have uh, Harry's column and two extracts from your new book Dan. Yes two of the delights in my book Extra Time 50 Further Delights of Modern Football the two you chose were when the referee falls over and spotting a footballer in a non-football setting I think it's got a better title than that though <laughs> so yes you can read those and decide not to buy the book or to buy the book or to get it from the library 
And what is your column about this time, Harry? Well, well, I was on holiday recently, and I, the, the the bed that I was sleeping in, I normally avoid because I'm six foot five. I, I don't normally like a bed that has a, a foot on it. I don't know what you really call it. The end of a like the the opposite of the bed head, the bed foot that sticks up. I, I don't like them. And this one had a metal one. And I woke up one night and I'd kicked it so hard that I thought I'd actually broken my toe. Uh, and my girlfriend said that I'm, I often do that in my sleep. But she said, she said, it's really funny. You start off like you're running like a dog chasing something and then you start kicking. And she said, you do it all the time. It's almost like you've got post-traumatic stress disorder from, a, from playing football. Um, but there are some things too dark even to discuss uh, with your loved ones. So instead, I've written about it in a Wednesday to come to call <laughs> That's what we're there for. That's what, yeah, it's, you know, I feel better. <laughs> I feel slightly cleansed. Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Genefield Swifts, Dale Gordon, angry T-bar owners, and it's landed on pre-football careers. Andy, what does that completely accidental topic bring to mind for you? Uh, well, it's the strange story of Zay Carlos, Brazilian left-back, is one of the few players, though there are a few, who's made his only international appearances at a World Cup final. In his case, he played in the semi-final against Holland in 1998, where he filled in for a, an injured teammate. He'd been a player with very small clubs in Brazil these in his mid-twenties when he joined one of the bigger clubs, Sao Paulo, and he'd worked as a a water carrier on construction sites. But then this is something that was mentioned in, I remember hearing it in, in all the coverage of the game. This is kind of saying this guy, a few years ago, he was just carrying water for a living. What they didn't say was that in Brazil at the time, he's also known for his chicken impressions, which he used to do on TV whenever the play, whenever the squad were profiled. Surprisingly, he didn't get more caps because you'd think they'd want to keep someone around the squad who could do that. You know, the, the evenings would, would, uh, would fly by. I remember reading that a, a member of Uruguay's 1930 World Cup winning team had been a professional tango dancer. Um, but I can't now find who that was. I've, I've tried to find it, I can't find it. I also wonder if that might have been a euphemism slightly, you know, a young man employed to entertain maybe older women. Mm-hmm. I'll leave you to imagine what that might involve. Various players, of course, did national service in the 40s and 50s. Jock Wallace, a fearsome later manager for Rangers and Celtic, had been a miner, was also in the Marines in Malaya, where he had apparently had various stories about how he used to eat uh, monkey steaks. Um, or possibly even raw monkeys, I don't know. Some of his training routines, such as you know, the running up sand dunes and all that kind of stuff, supposedly from his time in the Marines, though I don't think he got his players to, to eat monkeys. Um, other miners, um, including uh, Billy Meredith, a uh, Man United in Wales, Wenger was famous for as a campaign, an early campaigner for players' rights in the 20s and 30s. It was a miner for eight years from the age of 12 when he'd been a, a pit pony driver. Um, and in relation to him not to do this job, but he had his own phrase that fans would shout at him, um, uh, Meredith were in, which related to these two musical comedians at the time who played bailiffs, I think in a very kind of Victorian <laughs> era, era kind of comedy sketch. And they did a sketch about breaking into a house. And one of them's called Meredith. And the other one, when they get in, shouts, Meredith were in. So people would apparently shout that when Billy Meredith was through on goal. So an example of the kind of fun they used to have before the Great War. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Tony Book uh, won several trophies as captain of Man City in the late 60s um, and, and was later the manager as a bricklayer till he was 30 when he turned professional with Plymouth before moving to Man City um, there's also the great story of, of Gary Tolbert who's a professional photographer in Chester he and his father ran a photo agency but when he was 25 he took part in a charity match with some professional players he wasn't even a regular non-league player at this point did really well was a scout from Chester was there suggested he try out for the reserves then they signed him he went on to score 81 goals in 154 games for Chester for he was the record league goal scorer for a while and also had a season at Crewe retired when he was 31 went back to being a photographer again so he only played six years as a professional subsequently his agency used to do the official photos for Everton I kind of heard his name in relation to that but I guess there may be other people in that kind of situation people who would have been really good footballers but for whatever reason didn't get spotted or they didn't sort of put themselves forward and, and ended up just playing at a lower level should also also quickly say there are a few well-known players who had jobs while they were still playing tom finney was a, a plumber as was harry dowd man city goalkeeper in the 60s who marky smith's dad knew him and when i interviewed mark in wc 157 march 2000 
Mark uh, would say, because uh, Harry used to, it was inclined to talk to people he knew in the crowd. And Mark said, we used to go behind the goal and Harry would wander over and talk about washes and copper joints. Finally, in, in this kind of area, players who had other jobs while they're still playing. You should also mention uh, Jacques Stockman, who's a quite well-known Belgian international defender of the 60s. who's only a part-time player because he had a job in a slaughterhouse in Brussels, actually in the Anderlecht <laughs> district. He played mostly for Anderlecht. So he'd spend the day slaughtering then train in the evening. So God knows what kind of lines he get in match reports. You know, <laughs> he sees guts all day and he showed plenty tonight, that type of thing. <laughs> and for you, Harry? Well, well, on the subject of Jock Wallace, I think um, actually uh, Kevin McCarrow, who's the Guardian football writer who sadly died a couple of weeks ago, he told me about Jock Wallace and he said that someone said to him that Jock Wallace went into the jungle in 1945 and never really came out. But uh, obviously the most famous one from round, round where I am is Chris Waddle, of course, worked in the sausage factory. Um, Ricky Lambert uh, worked in a, in, a pickled beetroot, in, a, in a pickled beetroot factory in Macclesfield. Um, but Raw Strand, who won 15 league titles with Rosenborg, and as often sort of described, we talked about the you know the Maradona of the Carpathians and the Maradona of the Bostrath, and he's sometimes referred to as the Giggs of the Fjords. Well, actually, he's not. He's referred to as the, the Norwegian Ryan Giggs, but I've I've made that with a bit up. But uh, but when he was played, when he first played for Rosenborg, the manager Nils Arne Egan. Uh, insisted that the play, that the young players studied or had a second job, and most of the players chose to you know to, chose to co- continue with their studies. Uh, but Raw Strand didn't, and he took up a job as a chimney sweep, which seems like a proper sort of a job, doesn't it? And uh, there was a Graffite, the Brazilian uh, midfielder who played for Wolfsburg, and I think was the German Footballer of the Year in two thousand and nine. Uh, Graffite, I should say, was his nickname, which means pencil lead in Portuguese. But he'd, he'd begun his career in Sao Paulo selling bin liners door to door. No, but he didn't have his own teeth either. And a friend of mine, a friend of mine is from Munich. Her father was the manager of an insurance company in Munich. And in the sort of late 50s, early 60s, he, a young man came to work for him who had just signed terms uh, with Bayern. And it was Franz Beckenbauer. And so Franz Beckenbauer worked as an insurance salesman for him. And for years afterwards, Franz Beckenbauer was very, as you might imagine, was very polite and uh, deferential to authority. And whenever he was away on international duty or when Bayern were playing in Europe, he used to send my friend's father a postcard. Uh, And she's got this whole collection of Franz Beckenbauer postcards, which she showed me some of. And sadly, they're very much like the the stilted postcards of the 1960s, weather rainy, food a bit spicy, if you were here sort of thing. (laughs) There's no revelations in them. But still, nice to have a set of postcards from the Kaiser. Those jobs often follow the players around in commentaries and reports, don't they? Malcolm Christie was always referred to as a former supermarket shelf stacker with, with the with the adage pun during the match of the day highlights things like they were packing them in at the riverside as Christie scored. It just seems to plague <laughs> the sausage factory still plagues Chris Waddle. Well, exactly. When you say yeah. it, you just not, I mean, you know, we wouldn't even have to say we said that there's a player who worked in a sausage factory. Everyone would know it. But it's sort of funny with that in other sports as well because Stephen Roach, when he won the Tour de France in the, in the 1980s, uh, the Irishman, that when he crossed the finish line, I remember in Paris, Phil Liggett, the cycling commentator, said, oh, a dream come true for the Dublin paperboy. <laughs> you thought, when was he a paperboy? If he's a paperboy, this is a hell of a round for him, isn't it? You know, <laughs> To think one day he, he used to be a child. Do any of the players you mentioned brought transferable skills from their jobs into football? Well, I don't know, with Franz Beckenbauer, you think that, that you'd be, you know, the sort of insurance thing. You, you can imagine as a manager, I don't know why, that sort of calculation of odds seemed to be a kind of thing that Franz would have been involved with. Are, are there many sausage factories now? Equivalent now would be saying, uh, oh, he used to work, just to think, he used to work zero hours contracts for Mike Ashley. That's right, something like that. And also Shaka Hislop, um, who was a goalkeeper at Newcastle, Reading, West Ham, um, he went to university in, in the, the US, he's Trinidadian, and he worked as an intern at NASA. So at least when someone said it's not rocket science, <laughs> confirm that that was true. Confirm to Barry Venison. That's right, exactly. I, I suppose there is a modern example in the Middlesbrough squad, which is Lewis Wing. I can't think where he was working when he was signed from Shildon. So it can still happen. Yeah, well, there's quite a few players, haven't they, gone from non-league, I think, you know, fairly recently. So it is, yeah, it is possible for people to be picked up. You know, because quite often, players in the past I was thinking of Moreno Torricelli who played for Juventus and Italy he was he was working as a carpenter and Juventus didn't sign him until he was 22 and then the other players in the Juventus players nicknamed him Gepetto 
after the uh, the man who carves Pinocchio. Whether he made t- dolls, I don't know. So Deliveroo drivers don't give up hope yet. You might still play for Sunderland, is the, <laughs> is the moral of the story. <laughs> if that is indeed your dream. <laughs> <laughs> the reverse question came to mind as well, because this week the Bahamas-based Scottish Patriot Sean Connery passed away, and he played a few games for Bonnie Rig Rose, one of my favourite clubs. So what about the reverse question, the famous people who had dalliances with football careers first, the Gordon Ramsay Award for fake Rangers careers? Andy, any come to mind? Well, uh, on the subject of Sean Connery, if I'd, if I'd had the chance to ask him this, I probably I probably wouldn't have asked him. I maybe would have submitted it as a, as a written question. If he was a Scottish nationalist, why did he accept a knighthood? I mean, it's an honour from the British state, isn't it? And that was after he sort of became an SNP supporter. Anyway, what I'd say about that of people who uh, started out as footballers and did something else, four names, Des O'Connor, Rod Stewart, Julio Iglesias and Stan Boardman, a quartet you wouldn't want to be on a long car journey with, and all of whom were on the books of or had trials with football clubs. Who was with Real Madrid? Who's with Northampton? You need to look them up. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'd had Bradley Walsh at Brentford into that particularly horrible lift journey. Oh, Ronnie, Ronnie Corbett as well. He was on Hearts books, wasn't he? Presumably, you imagine, as a, as a jinking winger rather than as a, a very small centre-half. <laughs> it's nice to imagine him in goal, though, isn't it? I, I, nice to think that he was that he was like, he, no, I'm a centre-half. They, they kept saying, oh, you'll be a winger. And he was saying, no, no, I'm a centre-back. With his glasses on. With his glasses on. I was thinking, we, Iron Maiden have been mentioned on this uh, podcast before in relation to, to uh, Mark Poom's genital injury. Um, but the Iron Maiden bassist, Steve Harris, uh, was uh, on a junior with West Ham, and he was actually scouted by a famous uh, West Ham scout. I think Wally St. Pier might have been pronounced. He was the West Ham scout who found Bobby Moore, Jeff Hurst, and Trevor Brookie, and he also found the Iron Maiden bassist. Make sure you never miss an issue of When Saturday Comes by subscribing today. Not only will you have the magazine delivered to your door and save on the shop price, but you'll also receive discounts on books and t-shirts, plus get free access to our complete digital archive, which stretches all the way back to issue one in 1986. Go to shop.wsc.co.uk for more information. It's time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what have you picked this time? Well, I've gone for Lagrones by Jorge Ardanza. Uh, uh, it's a great uh, CD Lagrones. He used to play in the Spanish First Division. Great picture sleeve on this record. Eight bottles and glasses of Rioja, Lagrones being in the Rioja region. And the record's from the late 70s. The club went bankrupt about 10 years ago. They're now two successor clubs, both playing in the same kit, red and white stripes and black shorts. Uh, there's one team, Union, who play in the Second Division. Um, in the stadium of the original club and then one called Sociedad in the third division. Sociedad are uh, fan-owned, part of a movement in Spain called Football Popular, which involves lots of grassroots clubs formed by fans. With the other team, the second division team are privately owned and took the place of a smaller local club and rather opportunistically renamed themselves as Legrones. So uh, make notes anyway as I'll be asking questions at the end. So this is Legrones. <laughs> Defendiendo tus colores, entregado tu afición, eres entre los mejores, un equipo campeón. Defendiendo tus colores, entregado tu afición, eres entre los mejores, un equipo campeón. Defendiendo tus colores, entregado tu afición, eres entre los mejores, un equipo campeón. And Harry, your choice this time? I've gone for Arminia Bielefeld. Um, it's by ZZZ Hacker from 1993. Um, ZZZ Hacker are Arminia fans and apparently can regularly still be seen on the terraces at home games. They were a German punk band of founders of the German punk movement in about 1982 alongside the those legends, Die Tottenhosen, the Dead Trousers. Um, I picked this record particularly because we were talking about um, people with false teeth and the greatest manager in Arminia's history is Ernst Middendorp, who after he left Germany, he went out and he now coaches out in South Africa and in a lot he was coaching Kaiser Chiefs in a live game in 2007 and was shouting uh, instructions to the players and his false teeth flew out onto the pitch 
And this, this incident was so famous in South Africa that now in all the South African newspapers, Ernst Middendorp is just referred to as Mazinho, uh, which is the Zosa word for teeth. <laughs> Don't say you never learn anything. choice this time is We Are Wimbledon, Wimbledon's FA Cup final 1988 song, and I was horrified to notice looking on the squad picture, one John Gannon. John Gannon, I remember having a loan spell at Middlesbrough, which was remarkable only for his propensity to land corners on top of the goal net. Not one of his corners seemed to stay in play, they would just rest on top of the net in front of the Holgate end. But here he is singing. month on the When Saturday Comes podcast, I have a quick chat with someone from a club fanzine or podcast in a mirror of the way in which WSC once acted as a pivot for this country's vibrant zine movement. This time I was joined by Tom Lines, Walsall fan, When Saturday Comes writer, and one of the men behind Sadler's podcast, One Pod Beyond. One Pod Beyond started about nine years ago, so uh, we were sort of, uh, we're relatively ancient in podcast terms there were probably two reasons why I decided to start it firstly when you um, support Warsaw you always feel like the uh, the local media are probably concentrating more on the four um, Premier League and Championship clubs that we have on our doorstep um, which is probably true they do um, and that's fair enough but I just felt we weren't really getting enough coverage and I thought well you can either moan about it or you can do something about it and podcasting was kind of becoming more popular so I thought well you know I, I knew nothing about it I thought I might as well sort of try and educate myself quickly and um, and start a Warsaw podcast and it was the first one and it still remains the only sort of fan fan podcast which um, I'll, I'll probably take as a compliment. So veterans of the podcast scene that's that's a long time isn't it? It, it is quite a long time, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's interesting. It, it probably, as well as the local media thing, it, it grew out of a period where there were a lot of um, protests um, against the club. So also I felt we probably needed a bit of a fan voice as well. I mean, it, it's funny, isn't it? We can't even remember what the protests um, were about initially. It, it's one of those. Um, but basically, I think it was just boredom. Um, basically, fans had a long-standing sort of uh, set of issues with our former chairman, Jeff Bonser, and basically found out that he had a holiday home in Cyprus and started taking Cyprus flags to matches and waving them, um, literally just out of boredom, I think, because the season was so terrible and just sort of petering out into nothing. But he um, had a very thin skin and so immediately started getting stewards to confiscate these uh, Cyprus flags, which meant more and more people were taking them in, obviously, and eventually started banning fans um, willy-nilly. Um, and so there was a whole big protest about it at the time. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that the podcast came about was as a direct result of that, probably. Just occurred to me, back in the day, chairmen like that would ban fanzines from being sold outside Fellows Park because it would have been or, or the best got. But they can't ban a podcast, can they? This is an advantage of the of the form. Exactly, yeah, that's the, that's the brilliant thing. So we've we've sort of been a thorn in the side of the club ever since, although it has to be said relations um, thawed quite a bit once they got rid of the, the long-standing sort of club secretary and then they brought in some new people who, you know, we've had a sort of much more of a cordial relationship since, although, 
you know, we are completely um, independent and, um, you know, don't ever don't ever toe the party line. So, you know, we're still uh, still willing to criticise when they need criticising. And what kind of things do you do in the podcast in terms of content? I mean, I mean, it's remained largely unchanged for nine years. <laughs> we're not the most innovative bunch, but... Uh, you know, it's kind of a, almost a case of if it's not broke, don't fix it. And we have our formula, um, which people seem to like. So there's three of us who do the the podcast. Um, originally, there was a, there was a fourth who sort of uh, left early. He's very much the the peak best of one pod beyond. <laughs> so he he left quite early, but we're still all really good friends with him, Paul. And then now there's uh, myself, Gary, and Sam. Um, who do the pod and, and we'll literally we, we do about one a month unless something happens you know like we sack a manager or appoint a new new manager or, or something like that but but as a rule we'll do one a month we'll look back on games and we'll talk about what's going on and then we always take listener questions and we're almost always end up talking about food and we've kind of got this weird thing where we will always get like 50 50 questions about Warsaw Football Club and then 50% about food it probably reflects the fact that the black country is sort of food's a big part of our culture you know from sort of um, faggots and peas and uh, scratchings to orange chips the, the famous orange chips I don't know if you've ever had orange chips no I have not no but this sounds pure when Saturday comes fodder to be honest <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, a, they're a fascinating cultural artifact um, if, if you thought chips couldn't get any better or um, less healthy um, in the black country, we decided that um, we wouldn't just um, cook chips; we'd batter them as well. So that they are they are chips that are then battered in a batter that turns the chips orange. I think um, the mystery ingredient. Um, there are various theories, but I think it's probably paprika, something like that. And so, yeah, you get these very very crispy battered chips, which um, you know are, you must try the next time you're uh, oh. you're down there. Absolutely incredible. What about growing up a Walsall fan then? When did you start going? Early memories, early games, players and all the rest. I had a slightly uh, unusual introduction to football in that my dad was trying to work out things that he could take us to that wouldn't cost any money um, (laughs) when we were kids. Um, And he worked out that they opened the gates um, at Fellows Park early so you could get in at half time. I think what what he didn't realise or perhaps didn't care about was the fact that that was the away end. So for the first couple of seasons, all um, of my Warsaw games, I only ever saw the second half of games and I only ever saw it from the away end, which probably sort of explains my slightly perverse um, sense of humour when it comes to football. I had to watch the um, the first couple of seasons from, from the away end, and often when Warsaw were already two or three goals down. Do you remember Fellows Park well then? What do you remember of it? I do. It was brilliant. Um, I mean, it was. I've written about Fellows Park quite a lot. I have very fond memories of it. I mean, it was absolutely ramshackle. It was just... I mean, for, for three quarters of its, of its history, it only had three sides. Um, so the the um, the laundry end, as it was called, behind you know what what then became the away end, was literally just a brick wall um, because they built the ground next to a laundry, um, and then there were railway lines behind that, so there was no sort of room to expand. So Fellows Park for, for many many years just had three sides. Um, they built a new stand, but they just built it in front of the old one. They didn't bother taking the old one down, so you had to sort of look through this forest of ironwork of all the different bits holding these two stands up. And then the, the fans would bang on the sides um, of, of the uh, home end and you'd get a sort of a, a rain or, you know, a shower of, of, of old dusty old um, rust that used to come down from the ceiling. Yeah, it was a very evocative place. Um, and Warsaw fans have a, have a bit of a complicated relationship with the new ground that opened in 1990 because lots of shenanigans went on when we when we moved there and we ended up making a, a huge financial loss on it when we should have made a decent profit. So, um, so yeah, Fellows Park is very fondly remembered. Is there anything physically to remember it by in Walsall now? Is there a plaque or pictures? Did it become a supermarket? Like, you know, what's there now? There's, there's a shit clock uh, <laughs> is the answer. They built a Morrison supermarket on it and the the only thing they have to remember it is um is a sort of plastic clock with a football sort of almost like the sort of thing you'd buy in a 99p shop you know so it's a very crudely drawn um football with hexagonal panels and um you know 
and, and they stuck that on the front of I think for a number of years after they moved in, they used to have pictures of the players on sort of opposite the checkouts, but I've not been in there. I don't think I've ever been in there, actually. Probably on point of principle, I never went in, but I am told they used to have um, pictures of old players um, opposite the checkouts. I don't know if they still do. What have been the best of times for you as a Saddler? Um, best best of times. In recent memory, um, the 2015-16 season, where we came within a point of promotion to the Championship and just missed out, and then sort of having run our race had a you know almost a comically bad playoff campaign where we we lost heavily to a very good Barnsley team in the sort of playoff semis and I mean that's it pretty much unless you go back to the sort of the late 90s early 2000s where Ray Graydon improbably got us promoted above Manchester City when when City were in the third division or whatever it was called back then, and we finished in the automatic places above them, although they then obviously went on and beat Gillingham in the playoffs. But, I mean, that is, in in, in living memories, is probably the greatest season to be a Walsall fan. Although, you know, Graydon repeated the trick two years later after we got relegated straight back down from the Championship, and then, and then Graydon took us back up almost as if to prove that it, the first one wasn't a fluke. So, yeah, the, the Graydon years are, are probably the most fondly remembered for me. The 15-16 season was soured by... Dean Smith sort of leaving two thirds of the way through it and going off to to Brentford, which um, you know we really struggled after that. And you know I think if he had have stayed, we probably would have got over the line. But um, a lot of Walsall fans haven't forgiven him for that since. And I presume Graydon remains something of a folk here. I, I noticed the fantastic merchandise you sell with Wooden Pod Beyond, and you have a, a Ray Graydon mug, I think. Yeah, uh, Graydon's just an absolute legend. I mean, it's such an amazing story. He'd never managed before. Um, it was literally his first job. You can imagine the players almost him turning up and them thinking, you know, who, who is this guy? I mean, he had, he'd had a really good playing career. He'd scored the winner for Villa in the League Cup final, but had no managerial experience. Was quite old at the time as well. Had a sort of very avuncular style. He used to wear these sort of very loud sports jackets and sort of um, dark glasses on the touchline. He, he, was, a, he was an absolutely fascinating figure and a, and a bit of a disciplinarian by all accounts. A lot of the players talk about him coming in and um, you know telling them all to get haircuts and, and things like that, to come in and to turn that team, which you know must have had the lowest playing budget in the third division that season, and to get them promoted above Man City and a host of other teams who who had big backers and you know chairman willing to spend a lot of money to come in and do it on the shoestring budget that, that he did, and then repeat it two years later was just astonishing. And then of course. He never really did anything else. He just had these um, two miraculous seasons. He had a spell at Bristol Rovers, but but didn't pull up any trees and then sort of quietly retired. So, yeah, he's a, the grading years were, were absolutely magical. Not quite as magical. The Paul Merson season. Tell me about Merson in charge. <laughs> oh, dear. I mean, it, you know, it, it, would, it would be funny if it wasn't so painful, that period where... You know, for one game, we were top of the championship. Merson came in. I've, I've written about this in When Saturday Comes. That whole period was bizarre where it was it was live on Sky Sports News, his unveiling uh, as a player. I actually bunked off work and went to a local snooker club to watch him be unveiled live on Sky Sports News. That's how much of a big deal it was. And he was, you know, in his first few games, he was absolutely brilliant. He scored two world-class goals in a, a 4-1 opening day demolition of West Brom in sort of 80 degree August heat. It was, you know, uh, it was absolutely phenomenal. And of course, it didn't last um, by the sort of the by the winter of that season. He was in a rehab facility in Arizona. And one of our star players, Vinny Samways, was refusing to commute to games from Tenerife. So, you know, that that's how that's how that season unraveled. And unravel it did. Uh, so Merson went off. And then came back and bizarrely, um, we decided to make him caretaker manager for the last few games uh, as we desperately tried to stave off relegation, um, which included him playing some unbelievably gung-ho formation away at uh, title-challenging Norwich, uh, who duly thumped us 5-0 and we ended up going down on goal difference. So if you didn't laugh, you would have to cry because that was, you know, it was a bit of a low point to say the least. Merson jokes about his um, his his managerial career in inverted commas now, and you know gets some good comedy mileage out of it. But it was not funny 
as we experienced it. The following season in um, the third division, after we'd been relegated from the championship, um, he was still manager. He was appointed full-time manager. And I think we used about 50 players that season um, as we just about avoided relegation and then were duly relegated the next season. But yeah, there, there were, you know, there were cliques. Um, he was, you know, he was betting hundreds of thousands of pounds on obscure sports like Crown Green Bowls because um, he, he got um, got access to his pension fund when he was at Warsaw because um, it's sort of footballers' pension funds obviously mature very early. So I think he turned 35 and suddenly had access to quite a lot of money. It's, this is all in his autobiography, um, which is, you know, not pleasant reading for uh, for Warsaw fans. What about the club now then? Do you feel, I know you're in the fourth tier again, but do you, is it, I think, steadier now in the current ownership? Is the general contentment among fans? Yeah, I think what you need to realise is that there's... There's kind of a sense of um, us not being where we belong to be, where we deserve to be almost, and that's not being entitled. It's almost just, you know, Warsaw have played more games in the third tier than any other club. You know, they've won more games in the third tier. They've lost more games in the third tier. You know, that that's where we, you know, if anyone can be said to belong somewhere, it's Warsaw in the third division. So there's a sense that the fourth division isn't quite where we should be, although there's no doubt we deserve to be there because um, we've not been very good um, in the last few years. So, you know, we, there's almost an impatience, you know, to, to get back to the third division and it's not been brilliant on the pitch, but there's definitely more of a sense of togetherness. Off the pitch, we've got a new chairman, um, Lee Pomlet, um, who's much better at communicating with fans, uh, much more open. Um, and, you know, a bit more thick-skinned than the previous incumbent, although Mr Bonser remains our landlord, um, so we're still paying him £450,000 a season to play at Beskar, even in the, the current climate. So, yeah, I think at the moment, financial concerns like fans of any club in League One and League Two are probably um, paramount. We're hoping we're just going to have a a club to support at the end of this season. Finally, Tom, we will get back in our grounds at some stage. Which part of your days at the best got are you looking forward to most? Which aspects do you lay awake and think, I can't wait for that part of the Saturday? It's probably the Balti pie, to be honest. <laughs> um, I mean, that, it's one of our few claims to fame in football is that Warsaw were early adopters of the Balti pie um, and then everyone else pretty much f- followed suit. So, yeah, it's it's rituals like that, you know, apart from uh, meeting mates and taking my lad to games, which has, you know, been a big a big miss for us this season, especially away games. Um, I uh, live up in Yorkshire and we're really looking forward to going to places like Harrogate. And, of course, that's not mm. been possible. So, yeah, just just going to games and, that, you know, even a, even a defeat would be uh, would be fine just to just to be there and, you know, being able to to witness it with with mates again and with a sort of scalding hot balty pie taking all the skin off the roof of my mouth at half time. <laughs> You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter. Please give us a few stars and a good review on the Apple Podcast app or elsewhere, for instance, in graffiti on a bridge over the M23. Okay, I'll leave it up to you and we'll settle up later. Will you be needing anything else, love? No, with this lot and a bit of luck, we'll be fine.